Welcome back to A Better Brand of Happiness, the book of Philippians. This is session 14. And in this session, we continue our study of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Just to review very quickly, the big idea statement for this section of Scripture is, because we are united with Christ, who valued and served us over himself, we should value and serve each other over ourselves. And in verse, and just to quickly review, um, the first part of this paragraph is verses 1 through 4, where Paul taught that we should value and serve each other over ourselves. And we should do this because according to verses 1 and 2, Christ gave us everything, um, every powerful benefit that we share with every other Christian. And so because we have so much in common in Christ, because Christ has given all of these benefits to every Christian, and we share all of this in common, now that uh, should cause us to um, purify our motives, according to verse 3, and retrain our minds, according to verse 4. And so we have this security in Christ. We have all this stuff in Christ. We don't have to worry about fighting each other for position and trying to demonstrate our superiority. We share so much in Christ that we are now enabled to serve him uh, by serving others. Then in verses 5 through 11, uh, so that was, um, we should do this because verses 1 through uh, 2, Christ has given us these powerful benefits. Next, because in Christ we have so much in common with every other Christian, according to verses 3 and 4, we should purify our motives and retrain our minds, as I said. The next section then comes to verses 5 through 11, where Paul explained why every believer should think this way of other believers. Verses 5 through 11, the next subcategory of this, uh, this one larger paragraph, explains why we should do this. And of course, the answer is we're following Christ's example when we do so. That's what verses 5 through 11 focus on. It focuses on how Christ himself uh, served us. He valued and served us over um, himself. And so we should think about others the way Christ thought about us, according to verse 5. And then verses 6 and following ex- explain how. How did Jesus value himself, uh, value others over himself? Verses 6 through 8 tell us that. And basically they tell us that uh, verse 1, Christ did this by uh, did not clinging to his rights as God. But instead of clinging to his rights as God, Uh, all the rights and privileges that were owed to him as God, Christ emptied himself according to verses 7 through 8. Christ emptied himself according to verses 7 through 8. And we spent quite a bit of time on this idea of emptying himself, where I tried to teach you that emptying himself doesn't mean Christ actually gave up anything rather than other than his pride, in a sense. That is what emptying himself means. It's a metaphor for humility. Now, Christ's method for lowering himself was by taking the very nature of a servant, according to verse 7b. And how did he become a a servant? Verse 7 also answers that question by saying he was made in human likeness. And so Christ, although he was God and had every right and privilege belonging to God, yet he did not grasp that at all costs. Instead, he humbled himself by becoming a man. And then he humbled himself even more, according to verse 8 by becoming obedient to death. That is, even though he is life, and as um, both God who is life and as a perfect man who was not subject to the wages of sin, it was humbling for Christ to submit himself to death even though he didn't deserve death and even though he is life himself. And so that's what, uh, that was the next step, you might say, in humility. The first step was um, 
was becoming a man, the next step was submitting to death. And there's a third step in his humiliation, which the death that he humbled himself to experience was death on a cross, the worst kind of death someone could experience, especially in the world in which Jesus lived. And so now we come to new material for today's session. That's verses 9 through 11. And what we see there is, and if I had it on the screen, it would be letter C. Okay, letter C would say, Paul explained the result of Christ's humility in verses 9 through 11. Paul explained the result of Christ's humility in verses 9 through 11. And so let's read those verses together. Verse 9 says, follow as I read, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These three verses are the end of this paragraph of Scripture, and they are the final subsection in this subsection that talks about how Jesus was the example of humility. And this is what we'll talk about today. Verses 9 through 11, as I said, explain the result of Christ's humility. In other words, what was the outcome of Christ humbling himself by becoming a man, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross? What was the outcome of this? What resulted from it? Well, one answer to that question is that the result was, um, was our salvation. The result of Christ's humiliation was the salvation of people. Now, that's not the answer Paul's interested here in, in this point in Philippians 2. That is a correct answer, but it's not the answer Paul is focused on in this section. Paul has already talked about that result. That's one reason why he doesn't focus on it here. Back in chapter 1, verses 28, uh, the end of verse 28 and verse 9, we read these words, You will be saved, and that by God, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but the verse goes on after that. But in other words, Paul has already said that the gift of eternal life, the gift of faith in Christ, was the one result of Christ's death. Okay? And so um, Paul has already discussed this. The salvation that we have in Christ was also talked about in verses 1 and 2, okay? And so Paul has already told us that we have the benefit of Christ's death for us in our salvation and in all the benefits he gives to us as believers in him. All of this was accomplished by Christ's humiliation, by him humbling himself to become a man, to die, even death on a cross. And so verses 6 through 8 turn to a different kind of benefit, a different kind of result. And it's the result that Christ himself personally experienced. When Christ humbled himself to become a man and die on the cross, we experienced grace, saving grace because of that. But that's not the only result that happened. There's a further result, and it's a result that Jesus himself more directly participates in. That's what verses 9 through 11 are about. And so what exactly did Christ receive, or what did he get out of his, hum- his humiliation? And the answer is, according to verse 9, that he was exalted because of it, that God exalted him. Look at verse 9 again. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. The word therefore is a word of conclusion. It's one that describes something that follows necessarily after the preceding thing. The preceding thing was Christ became a man. He died on the cross for us. The result of that is God exalted him to the highest place. And this phrase that's translated highly exalted or exalted to the highest place in our NIV translation, that phrase is a compound word. It's one word in the original Greek language. 
And Paul used this word, and Paul may have actually coined this word because it's the only time we've ever seen it in Greek literature, the only time in the New Testament. But Paul uses this word to express the highest possible exaltation. Think about how low Jesus had to go to become a man, to die, and to die on a cross. Now Paul says God reversed all of that and exalted him higher than anything else or anyone else has ever been exalted. That's what he's communicating in verse 9. And so although Jesus lowered himself to save us by becoming a man and dying on the cross for us, he did not remain low for all eternity. Jesus did not stay in that servant role, that subservient role for all eternity. Instead, God gave him the highest possible lift as a consequence of his humiliation. God gave him the greatest amount of exaltation that anyone has ever received because of the humility that Christ showed. To use an English phrase, Christ, this put Christ in a class by himself. Okay, That's what Paul is saying here when he says in verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place. And the specific way in which God did this is given to us in verse 9b. And so verse 9b starts with the word and, okay? But I understand this, this phrase, and gave him the name that is above every name, not to be something in addition to. That's usually what we mean by when we use the word and. We say, this is true, in addition, this is true, okay? But I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. I think Paul is using parallel um, ideas, which, which was typical, um, especially in Hebrew thought, to clarify what being exalted to the highest place means. In other words, verse B gives a specific meaning to the phrase in verse A, Christ was exalted to the highest place. How did God exalt Christ to the highest place? Verse 9b, by giving him the name that is above every name. The glory that Jesus received as a result of his humility was that he received the name that's higher than any other. That's what Paul is saying in verse 9. And there is quite a deep rabbit hole here for us to go down, and we will go down it for a bit. Because the question is, what is this name that's above every other name? What specifically does Paul have in mind when he says God gave Christ the name that's above every other name? Well, scholars have debated exactly what this name is. And there are really only two options. They are, and so what I'm going to do in the next, most of the rest of our session this morning, is to walk you through these two possibilities. What is the name that's above every other name? There are two possible options. What I'm going to do now is, number one, tell you what the two options are. Number two, give you the arguments for each one. And then number three, tell you what I believe the answer is and why. Okay? So that's what we're doing next. We're going to answer the question, what is this name that's above every other name? I'm going to give you the two options. I'm going to give you the strengths and weaknesses of them. And then I'm going to tell you what I think the answer is, and I'm going to tell you why. All right? First of all, there are two possible options. What is the name that's above every other name? It can be one of two things. One, it could be the name Jesus, or two, it could be the name Lord. That's it. That's all you got, okay? One of them is given in verse 10. The other is given in verse 11. So the name that Jesus received, the name that God gave him that's above every other name is either the name Jesus or it's the name Lord, one of those two. Now let's... um, Let's examine these two in some more detail. And let's start with the argument for the name Jesus first. Let's give the argument for the name Jesus. Verse 10 says that at the name of Jesus, okay? And so it sounds like the very wording that Paul uses here answers the question, okay? In other words, look at, look at your passage with me again. 
verse 9, it says, God gave him the name that is above every other name, and the very next words out of Paul's pen are, that at the name of Jesus. That sounds to me like the name that's above every other name is the name Jesus. And so the grammar itself suggests that Jesus is the name that's above every other name. And scholars um, have debated what this is, as I've said. Um, so so um, that's the first argument, is that the first thing Paul said after saying that God gave him this name is the name Jesus. Now, another argument here that we'll talk about in a minute is that, is that Jesus is a name, whereas Lord is usually th- thought of as a title, okay? We talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, but that's actually a title. It's not a name. All right, and so that's one of the arguments for the name Jesus being the name that's above every other name. All right, so that's the argument in a nutshell. Well, I'll unpack this a little bit more in a minute. But the argument for Jesus being the name that's above every other name comes down to two things, that um, Jesus is the next thing out of Paul's mouth, and or out of his pen, I should say, and number two, Jesus is a name, whereas Lord is not. All right, now let's consider the argument about whether or not the word Lord is the name that God gave Jesus to exalt him above to the highest place. What are the possibility or the possible answers here? Maybe Lord is the name that Jesus was given that's above every other. So let's consider that. First of all, it's true that Lord is a title. It is true that Lord is a title. However, in the Old Testament, God had a personal name the name Yahweh. Sometimes it's mistranslated Jehovah, all right? And I don't have time to go down this whole rabbit hole, all right? But the word Jehovah is a mistranslation of God's name. Don't use it. This name, Yahweh, is the personal name of God. It's the one that God disclosed to Moses. And it's the one that God used as his personal name throughout the Old Testament, And so while the word Lord is a title, it's often the word that is used to substitute for the name Yahweh in the Hebrew scriptures. Remember, the Hebrews were very scrupulous because the Ten Commandments say, do not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. Because of that, the Hebrew people were very skittish about saying the name Yahweh. And so they would substitute the word Lord so as not to say the name, because if you don't say the name, then you can't use it um, in a profane way, right? You can't You can't take the Lord's name in vain if you don't actually say the Lord's name. And so instead of saying Yahweh, they would substitute the word Lord. Okay, and so while the word Lord is a title, it's often a title that is used in place of to signify God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. And so the argument that Lord is a title, therefore it can't be the name, all of a sudden looks a lot weaker, doesn't it? But let's go on. Paul seems to be quoting here, or at least alluding strongly, to Isaiah chapter 45, verses 20, the end of verse 23 and the beginning two lines of verse 24. Isaiah 45, 23, and 24. I'm going to read those verses to you in a minute. But Paul, his language here, especially in verses 10 and 11, parallels in some pretty specific ways. This passage from Isaiah chapter 45, verses 23 and 24. And in that passage, guess what? God's covenant name, Yahweh, is used. Okay, and so here's the argument. Paul is drawing this language from Isaiah 45, and in Isaiah 45, the covenant name Lord is used. And Paul says Jesus Christ is Lord in verse 11. And so the argument is, if we understood how much Paul is is drawing from Isaiah 45, we would see that the name that that, that God gave 
to exalt Jesus is the name Lord. That's the argument. Now, for a Jewish person, there is no name greater than Yahweh. And so if you put all of these things together, that Lord is sometimes substituted for God's covenant name Yahweh, that Paul seems to be drawing from Isaiah 45 where the name Yahweh is used, and for a Jewish person, there is no greater name than Yahweh, all of a sudden, the idea that the title Lord or the name Lord as a substitute for Yahweh is given to Jesus here, all of a sudden, that argument looks pretty strong, doesn't it? All right, so now let's sift through the strengths and weaknesses of these arguments. Let's talk about the various uh, things that have to go into deciding which one of these is. Is the name above every name Jesus or is it Lord? Let's assess the options a little bit more closely. And then I'll tell you what I think, okay? It is true that the word Lord is used for God's personal name, Yahweh. There's no question about that. God's personal name, Yahweh, is translated Lord in small caps, okay, so a capital L, but then a small capital O, a small capital R, a small capital D, just like it is right there on the wall, okay? That is the covenant name. When it's capitalized like that in our English translations, that's indicating that God's covenant name is used in distinction from the title Lord, which is um, either lowercase or capital L and lowercase O-R-D. Are you following? I know this is, this is kind of technical, but I hope you're following with me here. Okay, so the point here is that, um, is that the word Lord is often used for God's personal name, Yahweh. And God's personal name, Yahweh, is translated L-O-R-D, capitals, all small capitals, in most of our English translations. That's how you know which one is being used. Now, here's another wrinkle to the argument. Jesus and the apostles and every Christian in the first century read from and quoted from a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Okay, in other words, you understand the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. By the time Jesus and the apostles and everybody else came along, everyone on in the place where Jesus lived, all the countries in the Middle East and part, part of what we call Europe now, all of them spoke Greek. Greek had kind of taken over as the written really, they, they wrote in Greek. They spoke in Aramaic, but they wrote in Greek, all right? So Greek had taken over as kind of the official written language of the world in which Paul and Jesus and the apostles lived. Now, when Paul, Jesus, and the apostles quoted from the Old Testament, they almost always quoted from this Greek translation of the Old Testament. They didn't quote from the Hebrew Scriptures. They quoted from this Greek translation called the Septuagint, and guess what? In the Septuagint, God's personal name, Yahweh, is also translated with the Greek word for Lord. The wording Paul used here, as I already mentioned, is uh, here in Philippians 2, 10, and 11, is similar to the way the Septuagint translates Isaiah 45, 23, and 24, as I've already indicated. That passage, Isaiah 45, 23, and 24, says this. Let me read it to you. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, alone are deliverance and strength. Now, those first few lines sound a whole lot like Philippians chapter 2, 10 and 11, don't they? By me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. Okay, and so people who follow this argument, people who believe that the name Lord is the name that's above every other name and given to Jesus, Look at this passage, and they say Paul is alluding very strongly here to Isaiah 45, and the next name that is said is the, 
is God's covenant name Yahweh. All right? And so that's a pretty strong argument for the idea that the name that's above every name that, that Jesus received is the name Lord. That's a pretty strong argument. Now let's assess the idea that Jesus is the, is the right or maybe not the right name that's above every other name. It is true that Jesus is a human name. That's one of the big um, drawbacks, you might say, of saying that Jesus is the name that God gave him that's above every other name. People say, well, that's a human name. And it's true that the second person of the, or it's a name, I should say, that the second person of the Trinity did not have until he was born on earth. Jesus was not called Jesus until he was born in Nazareth. Before that, he was called the Logos, or he was just called God. He was not called Jesus until he became a human. It's also true that the logic of verses 9 through 10 suggests that God gave him the name that is above every name after God exalted him to the highest place. Look at verse 9 again. Paul says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and I told you the next phrase could be translated, by giving him the name that's above every other name. Well, if that's true, if the name that's above every other name was the result of God exalting him to the highest place, it sounds like Christ had to be humbled, and after he was humbled and rose again and ascended, he was exalted to the highest place, and then he was given the name. Okay, that's what the logic of verse 9 seems to indicate. And so, so I think that's a pretty strong argument, too, that maybe Jesus isn't the name that's above every other name. Maybe it is Lord. So there are, good, there are some good reasons to wonder whether the name Jesus is the name above every other name or whether the name Lord is the name above every other name. But although Jesus is his human name, I concede that, it's also a name that God gave him. Right? That's what Paul is saying in verse 9b. God gave him the name. Well, Jesus is a name that God gave him. Yes, it's a human name, but it's one that was given to him by God. I quote for you, Matthew 121. There, Joseph is thinking about divorcing Mary because he thinks she's been unfaithful before their marriage. And as he's considering this, an angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him, no, this is an act of God. This is a miracle. This is the Holy Spirit that's caused her to conceive. And then the angel of the Lord says this in Matthew one twenty one: she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so God is the one who said, Jesus is going to be called Jesus. He's the one who gave him the name. He gave it to Joseph to give to him on earth. And so I think, the name that the, I think the argument that the name Jesus is a human name and therefore cannot be the name God gave him is wrong. I don't think that it's really that strong to say that because Jesus is a human name, it can't be the one that God gave him to exalt him to the highest place. Furthermore, I would say this. The way Paul worded verses 9, 10, and B, 9, 9b through 10 strongly suggests that Jesus is the name that's above every other name. Do you feel like I'm kind of wishy-washy going back and forth between these two? I want you to feel that tension because there are good arguments on both sides. What I'm going to tell you is what I think the answer is. I think it's a, what I'm going to say is a pretty strong argument, but I don't think it's an airtight one, okay? And so I want you to feel the tension. I want you to see that there are good arguments on both sides here. One of the, one of the good arguments for the name Jesus being is that one, that God gave him the name, just as Paul says in verse 9b. But, but a second good argument comes right from the language of the passage itself. And I think this should not be overlooked. Allusions to Isaiah 45 aside, those don't come till verse 10. 
In verse 9, Paul says, God gave him the name that is above every other name. And then verse 10 immediately follows, that at the name Jesus. Now let me think, let me, let's think through this. Notice how closely together these phrases occur. That the name of Jesus is above every other name. That it, or God gave him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus... That sure sounds like Paul is trying to tell us the name that God gave him is the name Jesus. And I've never seen a good argument that debunks this, honestly. And I would go further and say this. Remember that every statement, every statement that anybody ever makes about anything is the answer to some implied question. Did we talk about this when I took you through the big idea? I think we did. Okay, because finding the big idea is built on that assumption that you can unpack every statement by asking what question is implied by it. All right, let's return to that then. If every statement answers some implied question, then what question is Paul answering in verse 10? That at the name of Jesus. In other words, if you, were, you and I were not reading this in Scripture, but we were actually talking to Paul about this. And he said, you know, God exalted Jesus for his humility and he did that by exalting, he did that exalting by giving him a name that's above every other name. What would be the next question out of your mouth? I think probably for most of us it would be, and what is that name, Paul? You say he gave a name that's above every other name. Well, I want to know what that name is. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't that kind of be the next question? Because you might be thinking, well, did God give him a different name? Does, he, does Jesus have a different name now because he's been exalted to the highest place? And what is that name? So I can worship him by it. So I think the, most, the next question most people would have after reading verse 9 is, what is the name that's above every other name? And it looks to me like Paul anticipated that question and immediately answered it in verse 10 when he said, that at the name of Jesus. It sure looks like verse 10 answers the question, what is the name that's above every other name? It's hard for me to see any reason why Paul would say that this next line if he really means the name is Lord. Also note that in verse 10, it goes on to say, every knee should bow at the name of Jesus. That sounds like a name that's exalted above all others, yes? If every knee has to bow to it, and it's at the name Jesus that every knee will bow, it sure sounds like Paul is saying, it's exalted above everyone else. So the question, what is the name that is above every other name? I think the answer clearly is Jesus. What is the name that's above every other name? It's Jesus. Now, it's true that Paul's wording here in Philippians 2, 9 and 10 is similar to Isaiah 45, but it isn't that similar. It isn't as similar as the people who want to make the argument for Lord want to think it is. Isaiah 45, 24 says, They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. That's a pretty significant divergence from Philippians 2, 10 and 11. And so, you, yeah, Paul borrowed two phrases from Isaiah 45, but that's all he borrowed. He moved away from it immediately. Also, another uh, argument that I'm going to make here that the name is Jesus, not Lord, is, a, is more of a theological argument. All right, so follow me on this. We believe that Jesus is God. All right, we as Christians, that's part of one of the core tenets of our faith, that Jesus was not just a man. He was a man, but he was not just a man. He is God. We believe that he claimed to be God. This was a big part of Jesus' teaching. We also believe that many passages in the New Testament, including here in Philippians 2.6, 
Remember, in being, very, being in very nature God, Philippians 2.6 says. And it and many other passages of Scripture teach that the deity of Christ, that Jesus was God and is God from all eternity, that there never was a time when Jesus was not in existence and there never was a time when Jesus was not God. So if we believe, and we do, and if Jesus was and is God, then he already had the name Yahweh. He already had it. It's not something God the Father gave him. It's something he had by his very nature. The Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, and the Spirit is Yahweh. Now, Jesus himself claimed to be Yahweh while he was on earth. He called himself I Am. Okay, I Am is very similar to the name Yahweh, and it's one of the ways in which the, the word Yahweh was understood. It was understood as a, as a term, a name that indicates the eternality of God, that God exists in an eternal present, present tense. He, there is no past for God or no future for God. He's eternal, so he always is. I am, okay? Well, Jesus took this, this name for himself in John 8, verses 58 through 59, which says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. The people who heard Jesus say this understood very clearly that he was making a claim to the name Yahweh. And we know they understood this because verse 59 says this, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. Okay, They understood that by calling himself I am, Jesus was saying, my personal name is Yahweh. Now, here's the point. So Yahweh is not a name that was given to Jesus after his exaltation. And if we say that, that, that Lord is the name that's above every other name, what we're saying is Jesus wasn't called Yahweh until after his humiliation, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. That's when he finally earned the name Yahweh. This, this is almost heretical because it denies to the second person of the Trinity the name that belongs to God. And so Yahweh is not a name that was given to Jesus. It's a name that he always had. But Jesus is a name that was given to him. There was a time when Jesus was not called Jesus. And God came along and said, you will call him Jesus. And God give, did give him the name that's above every name. And so what Paul is saying here is that the name Jesus is the name that's above every other name. What's changed is not when he received it, but rather that instead of being a name of someone who was famous, but despised and derided by people, now it's exalted so that everyone, even his enemies, must bow before Christ. That's the way in which his name is exalted to the highest place. And so my understanding of this passage is that the name above every name is the name Jesus. However, so what I'm about to give you with this hand, I'm going to take away a little bit with the other one, okay? <laughs> a little bit. I must acknowledge that my position goes against two commentators on Philippians that I trust very much, okay? And so I have some fear and trepidation because I don't think myself to be a better exegete, a better student of Scripture than they are. I just, I just can't... There are too many reasons to say that Jesus is the name that are compelling to me to say that, they, that, uh, that it must be Lord. So I hate to say that they're wrong, but I think they are. All right, I think Jesus is the name that's above every other name. All right, now let's come back to the point of all this, right? We've gone down this rabbit hole to try to answer an important question, and I think it is an important question. I think it's worth answering. But Paul is not trying to teach us here 
what the name is. He just is, he's assuming we'll get it from reading the passage. What Paul is trying to tell us is, what is the result that happened to Jesus after his humiliation? And the answer is, he didn't stay humiliated for all eternity. Instead, verse 9, because of his humiliation, because he put us ahead of himself, because he loved and served us ahead of his own interests, ahead of his own glory that he deserved as God, because he was willing to humble himself, become a man, die, even death on a cross, God said, I'm going to exalt you to the highest place. The result for Jesus was glory. A glory that, in a sense, was greater than what he had, because before this, of course, before he was exalted to the highest place, there are people who mocked him, who cursed him, who did not believe in him. Now, the Bible says, there is coming a day when every knee will bow before Jesus. He will finally earn or he will finally receive, I should say, the glory that he deserved all along. But he will only receive it because of what he did in his humiliation and in his death. And so the result for Jesus is that God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him a name that's above every name, a name that's so magnificent, so powerful, so all-encompassing in its lordship, That at the name Jesus, verse 10, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There's coming a day when every person, even the most ardent enemies of Christ, even the most steadfast atheists and agnostics, even the greatest idolaters who have ever lived will bow before the name Jesus. And everyone will exalt him. And this will happen because of the steps he took in humiliation, because he lowered himself to save us. And verse 11 goes on and says, not only will every knee bow, but every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. But notice the final phrase there. This is the ultimate result of Jesus' humility, to the glory of God the Father. It does not detract from the other persons of the Trinity in any way for Jesus to be exalted to the highest place, and for his name, Jesus, to be worshipped and adored by all living things ever. It does not detract from God's glory at all. It is to the glory of God. It is to the glory of God the Father, the one who willed that this would be the plan for human redemption. It is to the glory of God the Father for Jesus to reign as Lord over all things and to receive the worship and adoration that only Yahweh himself deserves. It's to God's glory that this happens. The final question I want to come to today before we move on from this paragraph of Scripture is this. Why did Paul include verses 9 through 11 in this section? Now, follow the logic here with me and look back at the big idea statement. The big idea statement says, because we are united with Christ, that's the first two verses, who valued and serve us, served us over himself, that's verses eight and, or sorry, verses uh, five through eight. This is where Christ valued and served us over himself. We should value and serve each other over ourselves. That's verses three through four. Okay, you follow me? This big idea cobbles together several sub-arguments in this larger paragraph. Paul is saying we should love and serve one another over ourselves because Christ served us over himself. We should follow his example because of all he's given to us and because of the example he provided. 
Well, what does his glorification have to do with any of this? Honestly, in the most technical sense, it doesn't have anything to do with this. The glorification of Jesus described in verses 9 through 11 doesn't tell us anything that we didn't already know about his humiliation. And in fact, it's, it almost distracts a little bit from the larger point that Paul's making. Telling us that Jesus is going to be exalted to the highest place doesn't give us any motivation to love and serve others because Christ himself loved and served us. You follow me? So verses 9 through 11 are important, but they almost seem like a little bit of a distraction from the point. And so why are they here? Why did Paul put these verses in? Well, let me um, give you a couple of possible answers. One position, and I haven't talked about this at all, but if you read commentaries, you'll see it all over the place. One position is that verses 9 through 11, or actually verses 6 through 11, all of verses 6 through 11, is an ancient hymn that Paul is quoting. Look in your Bibles and see that almost every English translation changes the versification or the paragraphing, I should say, from being like prose in verses 1 through 5 to all of a sudden being poetic. All right, you see how it's, how it's sort of, um, there are line breaks like poetry. The reason that that is done is that verses um, 6 through 11 do have kind of a poetic flavor to them. They are kind of exalted language. And because they are so poetic about the person of Jesus, some have postulated, some have argued, some have um, given a theory that Paul here is not actually the one originally writing these verses, but rather he's quoting an ancient Christian hymn. All right, a lot of scholars believe this, that Paul is quoting an ancient Christian hymn. And I think that's possible, but I don't think it's true. I don't think that Paul is quoting from an ancient Christian hymn. We know that Paul is capable of very poetic language at times. And so I don't think we should say, well, Paul doesn't usually speak in this kind of exalted prose, and so it must be a poem, it must be a hymn that Paul's quoting. I think that's a huge leap in logic. All right, and so absent any other reference to this so-called hymn outside of Philippians, I really think there's no reason for us to postulate that it's there other than, you know, just because we think it sounds exalted, which it does. But if it's true that this is an ancient hymn that Paul's quoting, then maybe he included verses 9 through 11 because that's part of the hymn, and he wanted the whole thing in there. You follow me? So maybe that's one reason, but I don't think that's correct. A better understanding is that Paul is giving us an implication that he doesn't draw out. And that is, the implication is that being a servant is not a permanent position. Paul calls us to love and serve others over ourselves in this paragraph, specifically in verses 3 through 5. He says we should serve others because we're following the example of Christ. But by telling us that God exalted Christ to the highest place, he is telling us that serving others is not a permanent position, that we're not going to spend all eternity washing the dirty feet of others, to use the metaphor that Jesus used for, for humiliation and service. Rather, what Paul is implying here without really drawing it out is that when we serve others, it glorifies God. That's the point, right? Remember, that's where Paul ends in verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. When we humiliate ourselves, when we humble ourselves and take on tasks in the church that put others ahead of ourselves, that say, you're more important than I am, so I'm going to do something for you, for your good. When we do that, God is glorified. That's the point. And the implication here is, an implication that's spelled out clearly in other passages of Scripture, God rewards those who exercise such humility. Throughout the entire scriptures, but especially in the New Testament, 
Jesus and the apostles say over and over again that God is going to reward those who serve him well in this life. And by telling us that God is rewarding Jesus, that God has exalted his name above every name and that every knee will bow to him, he is saying that just as Jesus' humiliation not only saved us but caused him to be exalted, so when you and I reach the kingdom of Jesus Christ, when we stand before him, he is going to reward us if we serve others sacrificially, if we value and serve others over ourselves, there will be a reward for us in eternity, just as Jesus himself was rewarded and is going to be rewarded for all eternity. And this is why humility is a better brand of happiness. This is what Paul is trying to teach throughout the epistle. And one of the reasons why I spent so much time on this, this part of the epistle is, one, this is where the, the, the most doctrine is taught in this letter, but also because it serves as almost the core, or you might say the foundation for everything that's taught in this letter. All of this entire letter is that joy, a better brand of happiness, is the result of serving others. And Paul is saying, you Christians are going to miss the the, uh, opportunity to glorify God if you don't serve each other, if you keep trying to cling to your rights, if you keep trying to exalt yourself, if you keep saying, I deserve to be treated better than this. You're going to miss glorifying God, and you're also going to not receive the rewards that God promises to those who serve him in humility. And so that's why this is the motivation. That's why verses 9 through 11 tell us the motivation for serving Christ in this way. Because it glorifies God, and God will honor those who glorify him in this life. And so it's a better brand of happiness. It's a joyful brand of happiness for us not to get as much glory, as much attention, as much exaltation, as many titles as we feel that we deserve in the church. That doesn't glorify God. It calls attention to ourselves. And it's not a good brand of happiness because it's a very self-centered brand that never, people who care about the attention of others never get enough of it. They always feel like they deserve more than they're getting. A better brand of happiness, Paul would say, is the one that's modeled by Christ himself. He rightfully deserves all the attention and all the glory and all the worship that created things can give him. He deserves it. He deserved it before he humbled himself, but Because the only way to save us, the only way to save us, was for God to become a man and subject himself to death, even death on a cross. Because that was the only way to save us, Jesus humbled himself. He laid aside all of the accolades and all of the worship he deserved and cloaked himself. Okay, Jesus came undercover, in a sense, by becoming a man. He died on the cross for our sins in our place, the substitutionary atonement of Christ so that he could save us, and he accomplished that, and he was also exalted. He also received the glory of God, or he, he glorified God and received the honor of God by, by receiving this name. And the, the point is this, if you will follow the example of Jesus, if you and I would stop being so focused on ourselves and our own rights and our own things that we feel that we deserve, if we would stop being so focused on ourselves, being so selfish and self-centered, and instead say, I want to glorify God, and he says I should serve others, 
then God would be glorified in us. God's power would be working powerfully in our church if we acted this way. And we could look forward to a reward when God honors us for taking him at his word and doing what he said and serving others over ourselves. And so the point of this passage, again, the big idea, the one that we should take away from it and the one that uh, should be the object of our, uh, our learning is that, that we should follow the example of Christ, that because we are united with Christ, who valued and served us over himself, we should value and serve each other over ourselves. This is a better brand of happiness.